Today we are beginning a new series entitled Ruth, A Redemption Story. And uh, I know last week I mentioned I was pretty exhausted and all that. And today I'm a little bit rested. We actually had a good night's sleep last night. Fern slept till like 5.30. So pretty good. Now, I, I say that, but I know that might not be good news because after last week, a few people told me I should be sleep deprived more often. I apparently did better without sleep. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got more sleep today. The title for today's message is God Pursues. I believe as we study this book, we'll gain a better understanding of how it fits into the larger story of redemption. If you look at the graphic that we have on the screen there that um, Ron made for us, you'll see the word Ruth. And I love how the shadow there says Jesus. Because this book of Ruth really is part of the story of Christ. And uh, so that's why we're studying it, so that we can see how it fits into the story of redemption. See, the Bible is not several disjointed stories that are written merely to give us a good moral tale or some advice. It is the story of God's redeeming grace. Genesis begins this story with the creation. And the story ends in Revelation with the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. And in the pages in between, we have the story of this God who creates and recreates people who have believed on his son, Jesus Christ. And so the book of Ruth advances this story even further. In this book, there are several glimpses of redemption. We see God's hased, and that is his covenantal faithfulness and his unceasing kindness He is faithful to his promise that he would raise up a savior. Back in Genesis 3, God said he would send the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Ruth is a thread in this story. And what we will see in this series is that ultimately the book of Ruth is about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. If you look in the first verse, you'll see uh, the time frame that this story takes place in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The events of this book take place when Israel had no king. It was the time of the judges. And the book that precedes Ruth is the book of Judges. And in that book, we're told this in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the times were dark. This was after the land had been settled, but before the monarchy had been risen up. The judges were local chieftains that were raised up to overthrow Israel's enemies, and they were many. It's likely that the events of the book of Ruth take place toward the end of the time of Judges. Because as we will see, Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, who would be king over Israel. But I don't want to get too far ahead just yet. This book was likely written sometime later, perhaps during the time of the monarchy or after Israel had been exiled. The story of Ruth uh, would have probably been compiled and recorded probably around the time that the Psalms were compiled. The way that this story made its way through the generations was as a story told amongst the family passed down from generation to generation. Throughout the dark time of Israel's past, 
we see often in the Old Testament that Israel would wander from God time and time again, wandering and disobeying him. And God would send judgment. And then he would draw them back. God was working to fulfill his promise of the Messiah. And this is one of the major themes of this book. You see, even in the areas of our life where we don't have eyes to see, where we don't have a good vision, a clear vision, God is working with redemptive hands to bring about his purposes. God was piecing together his redemption plan through events that may seem arbitrary on the surface. Ruth displays God's sovereignty in all of life's circumstances. Famines are decisions, whether right or wrong. Life, death, and redemption. God is at work. God is over it all. And Ruth shows God's care in the midst of life's disappointments. Now, there is romance. Almost a fairy tale ending in this story. But more than the beautiful story of love between Boaz and Ruth, which we will see, it is the story of a family. This family, if you are in Christ, is your family. This family heritage is your family heritage. Because one of the most beautiful glimpses of grace in this story that we are going to see is the fact that God chooses Ruth, a woman who is an outsider. She's a Moabitess. She's an enemy of God. And she's chosen and brought in to be the great-grandmother of David. And in the lineage of Jesus himself. God moves outside of man's expectations and legalistic boundaries to bring into the lineage of Christ a Gentile woman. An enemy. I have an image I want to put up for you. Now, I know that uh, some of the names that you're going to see on the list, this list are going to be too small to see. But there, there's only a few names that actually really matter in this moment. And that's at the top of it, you see Ruth and Boaz. And then a bunch of names. And then finally, Jesus. This is Ruth's family tree. I love the fact that in the lineage of Jesus, you have Ruth, an enemy of God, an outsider. And Rahab, a prostitute, shows how far God is willing to go to bring in the outsider. God was showing all the way back in these pages that the kingdom was always meant to include outsiders. Ruth is our story. Because we're outsiders. We were the enemies of God. But look at the lengths that he goes to. Look at the lengths he goes to show his great love towards us. That he would move all these events and these circumstances into place just so he could bring Ruth in. And we see this even further in the new covenant related to us. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ruth certainly is a wonderful picture of faith and trust in God. She's a virtuous woman. 
But let us have eyes to see that God is the hero of this story. We're going to dig into this story over the next several weeks. And in it, we're going to see his faithfulness, his love, his kindness, and his sovereign provision highlighted over and over in this story. So let's begin by looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I, even if I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. Today we're going to look at a couple things here. Everything falls apart, and second, God's pursuit. Or, has it all really fallen apart? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed are sovereign over our lives. That we can trust you in the midst of circumstances that uh, seem difficult and challenging, as Jesse mentioned this morning. That we, that we know you're in it with us to work in our lives, to build patience, to build trust, to build hope. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. And we know that you are ordering our steps, the moments of our lives Because you are a good father. And you have a purpose and a plan for us. This morning I just ask that you'd help us to see that. And to see your son Jesus in the text as we study about his lineage. And ultimately even our own family lineage. Help us to have eyes to see. In Jesus name. Amen. So everything falls apart. We see this in the first five verses here of Ruth. Much of the book of Ruth is told through conversations. Most of the text actually is uh, recordings of the conversations. But these first five verses kind of set the stage for all the conversations that follow. And in it, we are given a good bit of information. So we don't want to just rush past it. Uh, These first five verses tell us a lot. 
And so, first, we are told, as I already mentioned, that the time frame is that of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their eyes. We're told that during this time, there was a famine. People were hungry and destitute. The famine had spread as far as Bethlehem, which means in the original language, the house of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. Israel, the land of milk and honey, had no food, not even in the house of bread. And so the people were desperate. We're not told specifically whether this was judgment, though that is likely, especially considering it was the time of the judges. Under the old covenant, Israel was told that if they didn't obey, they would be under a curse, which included infertility, defeat, and famine. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 19 says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And this shows the full extent of the law, the full extent of the old covenant. Um, This covenant with Israel carried curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. But again, we're not told specifically at the beginning of this book that Israel was under judgment at this time. But I think if you consider the consistent pattern of Israel and her wandering, it is highly likely this was judgment from God. Even if it was judgment... God would use famine to deliver his people and advance his sovereign purposes. We see this in the book of Genesis, when God uses famine to advance his plan in the life of Joseph's brothers to raise up for himself a people, a nation. The psalmist writes of that time, uh, Psalm 105, 16 through 17, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. We know, having looked at the book of Joseph, or the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, often that God will turn events that were meant for evil around. But here, it seems that what the psalmist is saying is even more so than that. God had actually ordained these events, not just simply turned a bad situation around. He summoned a famine on the land. He sent ahead a man who was sold as a slave. God is being faithful to his promise through all of these events, whether the life of Joseph or the life of Naomi and her family. Here in Ruth, we see a man from Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in Moab. This man, Elimelech, is from Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethlehem would be of importance in both the Old and New Testaments. In the Old, this is the home of David who would become king. In the New It's the birthplace of Jesus, the king of kings. Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons, and he sojourns to Moab. To sojourn is to be a resident alien in times of need, such as famine or war. It is to be a stranger in a foreign land. Elimelech is a desperate husband and father. He wants to provide for his family. He wants to provide food for his wife and sons. And he makes the decision he feels will be best for his family. And perhaps it is an ill-advised decision. Many have argued that it was a wrong decision. But the reality is we're not actually told that. 
though we clearly do see that God is working through these events. Moab was on the other side of the Dead Sea, so this was not an easy move on foot. Moab was an ungodly nation where the people worshipped false gods. It was an unclean nation born out of incest between Lot and his eldest daughter. For this reason, under the law, Moabites were not even allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation, which is really to mean not ever. Even in all of this, God has a purpose. So let's continue. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And Ephrathite just basically means he was an original resident of Bethlehem. He was, he was from that region. It's another name for the people that lived there. Continuing, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion die in the span of their ten-year sojourn. And I want to key in on this phrase towards the end of it when it says that the woman, Naomi, was left without. She had lost everything. In that culture, to be a widow and to be childless was to be as without as is humanly possible. She had nothing. She had no options. Everything in her life was falling apart. Naomi was in a foreign land with no husband, no children, no grandchildren, no provision, no, pro- no protection. Her family line was ending. She has no social standing. Without family, widows had no care. Imagine her grief. Imagine the sense of loss that she had in this moment. Famine, the loss of family. She was left bitter. And we can't just dismiss the suffering here. Suffering is a part of our life because of this fallen world. We will weep. We will stand before graves. We may even fear for our own life. Yet, Suffering is not outside of the control of our sovereign God. Perhaps these were just the consequences of the decisions this family made, or maybe it was just bad things happening. Because this world is fallen, and death is a part of life. It's not intended to be that way. It's not natural in the sense that God did not create it to be that way. It is a result of sin and the fallen condition of this world. But in this reality, death is part of what we experience here. Either way, God had ordained it. We do know that decisions have consequences. Whether right or wrong. And the consequences often affect other people. And maybe it's easier to believe the good parts of the story of Ruth are under God's control and somehow the The bad stuff that's taking place is just circumstantial. But God was in control even when Naomi was left without. Do you believe 
God is in control, even if the situation that unfolds isn't what you desired? Do you believe God is in control even when you make bad choices and face difficult circumstances? Now, at times we may assume that any negative consequence or adverse circumstance uh, that we face has somehow escaped God's plan. But God in his providence will sovereignly use our decisions and the consequences we face for our good. As Jesse talked about difficult, how did you say it? Difficult, uh, desirable, difficulties. desirable difficulties. God is working in these desirable difficulties to shape himself in us. Through them, areas where we haven't trusted him come to light. And we'll learn to trust him more. We'll never trust him perfectly. Whoever has. I mean, I look at my own daughter. Does she even trust me perfectly? You know, if I tell her we're going to go do something, usually there's a, well, why? (laughs) Especially if it's going to the dentist. But I do want to say that these bad things that we face today are not God's curses in our life. They are not God smiting us for disobedience. That's old covenant thinking. In the new covenant, Jesus was stricken for us. The old covenant curses fell upon him who knew no sin. Now the bad things that befall us are just that, bad things. Certainly, they may be uh, consequences of our decisions, but they are not curses or God's displeasure or his abandonment. If we make bad choices, we might reap bad consequences. But we must remember they are not his curses towards us. We have not fallen out of favor with God. We have all the favor that God has for his son, Jesus. Difficulties we face are for our betterment. They're part of our sanctification. They are grace, though, yes, they are a strange grace. God loves us, and he uses all things to love us, even our failures. We wander. We lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of the promises of God. We lean on our own understanding. But God patiently, graciously works as a tender father through our decisions and consequences that we face, and in the bad things that befall us that are simply just bad things, the result of a fallen world, he works in all of that to see more of his love, to see more of his goodness, to rely on him more, to trust him more. He is working to draw us back to himself and to keep our eyes on Christ. Back to the story, Naomi had lost everything. It was a time of darkness, but in the midst of it, God was working his saving purposes because God pursues. And so the second point this morning is God's pursuit, or has it all really fallen apart? Whereas our tendency is to wander and to forget, God's tendency is to pursue, and he remembers his promises. And so it's in this moment of darkness and bitterness when everything has seemingly fallen apart that somehow in the darkness and in the bitterness, good news reaches Naomi's ears. God had visited his people. Somehow in the fields of Moab, Naomi hears the news 
that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and ended the famine, providing food. And this idea of visitation includes the idea that God has brought comfort. He has graciously provided fatherly care and food. We'll go ahead and read verses 7 and 8 there in the text. I'm sorry, 6 and 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So this word visitation sometimes is used in places speaking of judgment. But mostly in the Old Testament, when we see it, it's referring to God's actions of blessing or intervening in crisis moments on behalf of his people. He has not forgotten Israel. He has not forgotten his promises. He is a father and his heart is for his own and so he provides. And what we see here happening is he has not forgotten Naomi. Yes, she's in Moab. An unclean nation. A nation that if you were from there you couldn't enter God's presence for ten generations. So obviously Ruth would not have been welcome. I read somewhere that um, one commentator put, she would have been as welcome as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. (laughs) But God remembers Naomi, and he remembers Ruth as well. He not only provides, he pursues. So what we see so far in this story is the juxtaposition of uh, seemingly everything falling apart... And maybe God being against Naomi, but in reality, God is in control and in pursuit of Naomi. This is grace. All these events that occurred were under his good and wise control, all to pursue Naomi and Ruth. Somehow, he gets word to the fields of Moab, and it reaches the ear of Naomi that there's food in Bethlehem. And she can return. They begin this journey to Bethlehem. But before they go too far, Naomi has this conversation with her daughters-in-law. Verses 8 through 13. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi considers the situation and she pleads with her daughters-in-law, return to your mothers. We see a couple things in this. We see that Naomi desires the best for her daughters-in-law. She loves them. She's praying that God would give them rest and provide for them husbands. Part of her reasoning comes from some of the bitterness that has come in because of her suffering. She sees God's hand in it all, but sees it as God being against her. She is fearful that things could only get worse, and so she hopes for better things for her daughters-in-law. Yet there is something here in her grief. In her bitter complaint, there is still faith. 
She sees all as coming from God. She knows that her situation is not outside of his sovereign control. It'd be easy to take this passage, this this book really, and turn it into a moral message warning against bitterness or warning um, against making bad choices. And certainly there's wisdom to be had there. But what we see in this is really God's sovereign plan and his grace working through all these circumstances. Now, the book of Hebrews does warn us that bitterness can put up a hindrance to receiving grace. And so I think there is wisdom there for us. But despite the simmering bitterness that Naomi is feeling, she is looking to God for provision. In a way, in her own way, she's echoing the words of Job when he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naomi reasons with Orpah and Ruth that her years of childbearing are behind her. And she has no more sons to fulfill their duty to continue the family line. In those days, it was in accordance with the law that if a man should die, um, a married man should die, and they had no one to carry on the family line, that a brother would come in and marry the woman and continue the family line. Naomi couldn't see how this would happen. Her sons were dead. There was no one else. She couldn't see how God would provide. In verse 14, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah tearfully kisses Naomi goodbye. Ruth clings to Naomi. In verse 15, which Mike will uh, speak on next week, Mike's in California, Mike and Nancy, uh, spending some time catching up with old friends out in California. Apparently the weather's better there or something. I don't know. Um, uh, But he'll be back next week, and he'll be speaking on verses 15 through 22. But we do see in verse 15 that Orpah does indeed return home. Ruth, however, clings to Naomi. What a tremendous sign of God's love being birthed in Ruth. We know we love because God first loved us. And Ruth had received God's love. She had received a special love for her mother-in-law. She wasn't following Naomi out of some obligation or commitment. She was following out of love. Love was the motivation to follow Naomi. Ruth clung to her. And the idea here is the same behind the marriage covenant. Two people, a man and a woman, cleaving to one another. This is the same connection that Ruth felt to Naomi. Not in the sense of marriage, but in the sense of cleaving to her. Naomi was her family. Ruth is abandoning everything. Her home, her people, and her gods to journey with Naomi, not out of obligation, but out of love. So what is the gospel in Ruth? Throughout this passage, we've seen some things that cry out for the gospel. The loss, the sadness and despair beg for good news and redemption. My wife, Chanel, sometimes calls this the gospel being preached in the negative spaces. This book was written under the old covenant, under the law, and the law points us to our need for Christ. So how does it do so here? How do we see the gospel in the book of Ruth? First, we see that under the law, there was a curse for disobedience, and Israel probably, more than likely, was experiencing that. Reading again from Deuteronomy, a few verses further in chapter 28, verse 45, 
All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. And again, notice here in this verse and what we saw in the previous verses from Deuteronomy, the word all. It's not just did you obey some of the law. Did you have good intentions to obey the law? Did you at least try to obey the law? It's have you kept it all? And if you haven't, then you're under the curse of God. But again, we're not under that covenant. We live under the new covenant, which is a better covenant with better promises. And Christ became a curse for us. He took the curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then in Hebrews 8, 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since he enacted, since it is enacted on better promises. In Christ, we have life and better promises, better hope, and we're not under the curse any longer. Second, the news reached Naomi's ear of God's visitation and the ending of the famine. Bread had returned. And when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry, he proclaimed to the people that he was and is the bread of life. He is our life and our provision. He is everything that we need. And so we feast on the gospel in which there is no famine. Even when we wander from the gospel, God doesn't abandon us. He pursues us. He works for our good to bring us back to remembrance of the finished work of Christ. To bring us back to the bread of life. To bring us back to the table. And finally, we see that in Naomi's suffering, she hasn't been abandoned. God has not set himself against her like she thought. Far from being against her, the Lord is working through Naomi's circumstances to bring into the world one who ultimately would redeem her and all of his chosen people from death forever. And though we may experience bad things or even consequences of our bad choices, God is working in it all. He is graciously pursuing. He is sovereign over our suffering. Whether a result of bad decisions or just the result of living in a fallen world, God is still sovereign. Jesus knew what it was to suffer. We have a Savior who is not detached, but sympathizes with us in our suffering. Not only because he knows all things in a general sense, but because he himself was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Hebrews four fourteen through 16, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of this, we can be assured that he has not abandoned us in our suffering. Rather than abandon, God has pursued us in our suffering by sending his son Jesus to suffer in our place. And so just as he visited his people in the story of Ruth, he has visited us in our affliction. When we were weak, wounded, sick, and sore, Jesus came to our aid. 
We were the orphan and the widow. And God has adopted us in and he has made us the bridegroom of Christ. We were all strangers in a foreign land, but Jesus sojourned here for a little while so that we might become citizens of heaven. We were poor, but he has given us the greatest inheritance. Ruth was an outsider and undesirable, but God wanted her. He chose her. He chose her to be part of the lineage of Jesus. In God's sovereignty, all of these events occurred so that you and I, outsiders as well, might be brought in. We were all outsiders and outcasts, but God chose you and I to be part of his family. And that's really the biggest reason that I love the story of Ruth, because what it shows is really a stick to the eye of the religious elite. (laughs) Here's this God who will choose someone like Ruth, who was an enemy of God, an outsider, an outcast, who by God's own law and commandment would not have been able to enter the temple in his presence. Not for the 10th generation, so not ever. And he says, you're going to be in the line of Christ, my son. And so how much more do you think he loves you an outsider and an outcast. And he's willing to go to this degree, this length, to chase down this woman, to bring into the family of Christ. He is willing to go that far and more for you. Look what God has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. That when we were cut off, when we were alienated, you did chase us down. You overtook us in your mercy and grace. You chose us from before time began to be your people, to be your sons and daughters. We thank you for the testimony of Ruth. Who is in Christ, our great, 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 great grandmother. Somewhere, lots of greats. We thank you for the testimony of your mercy and grace towards her and towards Naomi as well. We just give you praise and honor and glory for how amazing you are, how wonderful you are. You move mountains. You control all the millions and billions of things going on in this world, all to show your greatness and your love. Lord, let us have eyes to see, even in the circumstances that befall us, whether good or bad. Maybe even consequences of bad choices we've made. That you're working all these things for our good and your glory. Lord, help us to really trust you. And when we don't, give us grace. Help us to receive your love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.